Yes, I did just turn the air conditioner on. Well, not really, but in case it gets a little too hot. Good morning and welcome to the Church of Blue Ridge. If I have not met you, my name is Ted, one of the pastors here. It's good to have you with us. If you all would turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 19, we're going to continue in Ephesus. I have a question this morning for all of us, just to get thinking about what we're going to see today and learn. In Christian ministry, what is successful? What is success? How do we measure success biblically? That's a question before us this morning. Many in our culture, I would have been one of them a few years ago, would have been measuring success in church, in Christianity, by results. But as we study God's Word, as we see Scripture, and even on this journey, three-quarters of a year through in the book of Acts, I don't think we can say that. What we have seen from Paul, from the apostles, is that success in ministry is about obedience to the Word of God for His glory. And we're going to be reminded of that this morning as we continue. And we have seen already so much in this great passage, even just in this time at Ephesus, But as God calls us to trust him, to follow him, to join him in mission, it's so important that we understand that. True success is about obedience to his word, obedience to his call. And no Old Testament passage reminds me of that more than the call of Isaiah in Isaiah 6. And here is that. You'll see it on the screen, this great passage from Isaiah 6, 8. He said, he tells us, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Isaiah, here I am, send me. And if you keep reading that passage, God tells him, basically, no one's going to listen to you. No one's going to hear you. No one's going to turn and repent at the preaching of your word. And yet, who among us would say Isaiah was a failure? Was he not successful? He obeyed God, and God used him in incredible ways that still bless us Today And so that is true for us as well. Now, as we rejoin the text, we call this third missionary journey in Acts legacy. And we have seen so far, just in Ephesus, how God has moved mightily through this three-year stay of Paul in this great city of Asia. We have seen uh, that Asia, all of Asia, heard the word of God because of Paul's time there, teaching daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Also, churches were planted. We had a slide up there a couple weeks ago. Churches were planted all over modern-day Turkey because of these two years. We've seen these extraordinary miracles that have led to uh, men and women being saved out of this occult, uh, evil society there. Uh, We saw the name of the Lord last week just extolled. Even amongst the lost people, they feared and and respected the name of Christ. And then last week, we saw these new believers uh, shedding their witchcraft, their old ways, as they mature and grow in Christ. And so today, all of that leads to this boiling point moment where we're going to have this riot in Ephesus. And here, you'll see up on the screen, you'll, you, the, the big idea for today's passage. As we reflect upon Luke's description of the riot in Ephesus, we discover five consequences that, be, that, will, that, that come with being an obedient church. Let me read that again. As we reflect upon Luke's description of the riot in Ephesus, we will discover five consequences that come with being an obedient church. And you'll see the title, or hopefully you saw the title up there, The Straight and Narrow. Today is just that reminder that we as Christians have been called to the road less traveled, the straight and narrow path. And as, we, as you see these five consequences, don't worry, it's not going to be super long. I know it's like five points. Oh, my goodness, we're going to be here all day. We won't be. But as you see these five consequences, what, what, what it is is it's the application 
of today's passage are actually going to be the sermon point. And these are an encouragement for us to remind us of what it means to follow Christ, what it means to be his church on his mission, doing it his way, which is obedience. So let's pray, and then we'll dive in and read this great passage. Father, we thank you so much for your grace. Thank you for this time of worship that we've already had. Thank you for these here who have come out despite the hour of sleep that we all lost last night. Uh, just to come and to hear your word. Much like those who would come and hear Paul at the Hall of Tyrannus in the middle of the afternoon when they could have been sleeping at home during the, the siesta break in that culture. We are here today because we love you. We love each other. We want to hear from you, Lord. So please be faithful and speak to us. Grow us as believers. And if someone here who doesn't know you, save them, Lord. Bring them to faith and repentance as we look together at your word. And again, this great example that we have of the early church. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so the first of these consequences that come with being a biblical church or being an obedient church is this. It will bring opposition. We just have to get that in our heads. Being biblical will bring opposition. So look with me at the text. We're going to jump back in here in verse 23. Now we're skipping 21 and 22, but I assure you the next two weeks, both myself and Robert will come back to those two verses as they have to do with kind of the future of where Paul will be going after Ephesus, the road to to Rome, really. But we're going to pick up in verse 23, and we're going to read about half of the passage and start looking at the first few of these consequences. So join me in 1923. About that time, so this would be near the end of Paul's three years there, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from the business, that this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only to this trade of ours, that may come uh, into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius, in Articus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. So the first characteristic we see is that it will bring opposition, will bring opposition. So what's happening here is Demetrius is probably the head of the silversmith guild, a prominent man And as God is working to save so many people in Ephesus and also throughout Asia Minor, they're starting to feel it in their wallets. People are not buying these these miniature shrines. So it reminded me when I was a kid, I went to New York City. And when you go to New York City as a kid, you have to get a miniature Empire State Building and a miniature Statue of Liberty and bring them home. And I put them on my windowsill at home. Now, I didn't bow down and worship them. But that's what these folks would have done. They would have been miniature shrines of, uh, or really miniatures of the temple of Artemis. I told you guys a few weeks ago 
that the Temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's larger than an NFL football field, four times the size of the Parthenon. And so these silversmiths would make miniatures of that temple so that people could worship Artemis wherever, wherever they were. Now, we haven't, archaeologists haven't found any replica, silver replicas, but they have found ones made of terracotta and of ivory as well. Of course, you can imagine why there's no more silver ones. They would have been remelted and made into something else at, at some point. So these guys are starting to feel it in their wallets. Uh, not only that, they get the silversmiths together, together, but anyone who was part of the trade, anyone who profited off of the worship of Artemis. I told you guys a few weeks ago that uh, this was a tourist town, all right, because their industry, their economic industry had dried up, uh, and in some ways, uh, maybe literally. The, the harbor was filled with silt. So much silt was running down the rivers that fed the, the Ephesian harbor that ships could not come in anymore and drop off and pick up cargo. So at this point, they're not making money in that way anymore. Now they're making money solely on the worship of Artemis. And some scholars think that this, uh, this, this goddess, Artemis, her religion, her cult, was probably the largest religion in the world at the time. Isn't that interesting? Not for long, but it was at this time. And everyone throughout Asia would worship her. There were actually 33 temples to Artemis throughout Asia Minor in, in different parts of the Roman Empire. This, of course, was kind of the headquarters, the Mecca, the main one where they would come. So you could imagine this group of people together, not just silversmiths, Possibly people in any industry of the service industry, it could have been hotel owners, restaurant owners, uh, and anyone who would profit off of this great tourist area. Just imagine Orlando, if you will. In 1980, my mom moved to Orlando. I'd go visit her every few months, and there was just Magic Kingdom and SeaWorld back then. And it wasn't much bigger than Greenville. Just a few buildings, a lot of woods. You go there today, forget about it. It's nuts. Because of the tourism industry. So if you can imagine Orlando, just that's Ephesus. That's what's going on in this city. But look with me at the text of what they tell us. They, Luke gives us the real prophet at the beginning. He says, men, you know this is how we have our wealth. Literally, that word wealth is profit. This is how we make our profit. So that's their main motive. That's what for them it's all about. Now, he'll turn that here in a minute to to stir up the emotion of the crowd. But he's making it very clear, this is about money. This is about money. This this Paul. And and just think for a moment of the masters in Augusta, Georgia, not too far from us. Could you imagine if we all went down to Augusta, Georgia, about six months before the masters, and we went around through the town preaching that tennis was a better sport? How do you think we would be received in Augusta? That city exists because of the masters. I heard one story, I think from one of you, of a family who rents out their home for like $4,000 for the week. And then they go to Europe on a great European vacation, right? They wouldn't be too happy with us. So you can imagine what's happening here. And this whole passage, we don't see much of Paul. We don't hear Paul teaching. But the one line of his teaching they now use in this meeting to stir up emotion. That this Paul is saying that gods made with hands are not God's at all. And has Paul said that? Yeah, we can go back to chapter 17. He says that while he's in Athens. But Paul was never against Artemis, right? He's not, he's not there preaching against Artemis. He's preaching for the gospel. Now, of course, the implication is there is no other God but one. There is no other God but one. But we need to understand the motive here. And in our society today, we have a similar example of this with 
abortion. Now, before I say anything about abortion, I always say to anyone in here who has had one possibly or helped to pay for one, there is grace here at, at our church. There's no judgment. No judgment. We have grace for you. You're in the right place. What we're frustrated with is the movement in society that pushes this sacrament, really, of secularism and the progressive movement. But don't think for a minute that it's about women's rights. It's about the almighty dollar. It is all about money. Very similar to what we're seeing uh, in Ephesus at this time. So as we continue to make our way down this first section, uh, this guy Demetrius was great at uh, propaganda and, and use of rhetoric here because he quickly gets them away from the real issue. And look how he uses these three things to stir them up. This trade of ours may come into disrepute. The temple of the great goddess may no longer matter. And even the goddess herself will be dethroned. And I find Huber here in the text. If she's a goddess, does she really need us to, or these people to fight for her, right? Isn't she going to be able to take care of herself? Kind of reminds you of Elijah and Mark Carmel, how he's mocking the, the false god Baal in the same way. But, the, but he's starting to, what he's doing is he's stirring up that cultural emotion. He's stirring up that frustration the patriotism, and now these people start getting angry and want to do something about it. Maybe they hadn't thought about this yet, but you know what, Demetrius? You're making a lot of sense. I'm not making as much anymore, and now I know the problem. Let's go get them, right? Who's with me? That's kind of what's happening in this passage. Here's a great verse from 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, 10, where that same word used of Paul turned away. Demetrius was actually a good theologian. He was right. But God was doing it through Paul. He's turning away these people's hearts from the false religion to the one true God, just like he does today. Look at this passage from 1 Thessalonians where Paul is saying this very same thing. He says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn, the same Greek word, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Amen. That is the gospel. And that indeed is what God is doing in Ephesus. But these guys don't like it too much. So a few things that we can learn from this first characteristic. And by by the way, this is the longest one. So don't worry. We're going to go pretty quickly through the other four. But a few application points. Uh, First of all, aren't you glad that we don't live in a society that has these demagogues going around and stirring up anger and causing cultural war? Isn't it great that we don't have that? That's a joke, everybody. We have it. I think we can see so much of this in what's happening right now in our society as well. And it shouldn't cause us to fear. We should see it as opportunity. Opportunity to proclaim truth for the glory of God. Now, again, the point here, obedience to Christ will bring opposition. I could have named this sermon. This is what it looks like if you're doing it right. That could have been the name of this passage. Essentially, this is success. This passage is telling us this is how you do it. This is how you know you are being a biblical church and doing it God's way. You will be opposed. But with that, I must also balance it out and tell you we shouldn't go out to try to get opposition. Too many Christians go out wanting to be opposed, wanting to be slapped in the face, calling out the sin of lost people who can't even help it until the Holy Spirit changes their heart. We should not do that. We just have to go out and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. The opposition will come naturally, and God will be glorified. But we shouldn't go out and try to pick a fight, basically. We just need to go and preach truth, preach the gospel, live the gospel, and let the Holy Spirit do the rest. Do what he does 
uh, best, no doubt. So that's the first characteristic. It will bring opposition. The second one is this. It will not always be comfortable. It will not always be comfortable. And you see that now, returning to the text, verse 28, uh, he gets all these tradesmen stirred up. Imagine that they're in a, in a meeting place somewhere in Ephesus. They head out now into this main road called the Arcadian Way. It's a 35-foot wide main street in Ephesus. It's still there today if you get the privilege to go visit. And as I've said before, Robert and I would love to carry your bags on that trip. So take us with you. So you have this 35-foot main street. It, it connected the harbor of Ephesus. At the very other end is the theater. In fact, I have a picture of these right here. The theater is still there today. This theater would hold 25,000 people. Compare that to the old Bilo Center, Bon Secours Wellness Arena, 15,000. 25,000 people would sit in that. I just talked to a Turkish missionary over at the Hungry Drover this week who was there a year ago, and he told me, sure enough, he was at the top, and there was a group of people down on the stage, and he could hear them word for word. That's how the acoustics, they were amazing. So you, you can imagine the noise and the ruckus that we're going to see here as we move through the text. On the bottom picture, on the right, you see that road heading back out towards the mountain. That's the Arcadian Way. So that's the road that I just mentioned. So imagine these guys. They're, they're, they've stirred up. They get out on the streets. They start screaming and yelling, uh, Artemis the Great, Artemis of the Ephesians, as you see here in the text. All of a sudden, people start noticing. This is a busy place. So a crowd is gathered and all these people join with them heading towards the theater. And look what happens on the way. Look who they've run into. Two of Paul's traveling companions. We'll see these guys in other places of scripture. Gaius and Articus, Macedonians. Now, Articus was from Thessalonica, so definitely a Macedonian. Gaius, I think, is from Derby, So that's not necessarily referring to him. But they see these guys and they grab them just because they knew Paul. Just because they were identified with this, this mean old Paul who's preaching the gospel. This is something we can't forget. Being a biblical church will not always be comfortable. Imagine if we could interview these guys today. Hey, guys, were you very comfortable at that moment when they grabbed you and drug you down the street to the theater and put you in front of 25,000 screaming Ephesians? Not at all. They were not comfortable, but it goes with the territory, and we need to understand that if we're going to be biblical, if we're going to be an obedient church. And so you see this happening uh, there with them, with these two men who aren't very excited uh, at this moment. And as we, as we look to apply some of this, let's look at this passage from 2 Timothy. Here Paul's writing his very last letter, his 13th letter, his second Roman imprisonment. He's getting ready to die after this. Look what he reminds uh, Timothy of. He says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. And here's what we need to see. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Being biblical, being obedient is not always comfortable. That's okay. God will deliver us, even if it's that final deliverance home. A few application points uh, before we move on. Now, I, I didn't grow up in the 90s. I was an adult at that point. But I did watch the only Star Trek I ever really liked, The Next Generation, Captain Luke Picard. And I remember there was these, these villains in Star Trek Next Generation that scared the living daylights out of me. They were, they were called the Borg. And the Borg would go in. They were these, you know, biometric, half-human, half-machine. 
Whenever they would come into a place, they would have to make the environment suitable for them, the humidity level, the temperature, uh, before they could start to expand and, and do what they did best, which was kill people. So, and I say that because I think, especially with a church plant like us, Christians might come from other churches and want to come, take a young church like us, and maybe try to influence us to become habitable for them, yeah, to where they can live, to where they can flourish, that's going to meet their needs. That's not going to happen here, folks. We are biblical. We want to be biblical. We want to do things God's way. The Church of Blue Ridge, as long as Robert and I are here, are not, it's not going to be about us. It's not going to be about you. It's not going to be about our comfort. Are we going to have fun? Absolutely. We're going to have a great time with each other? We already are. Come join us. But it's not going to be comfortable. So don't come in like the Borg and try to assimilate us. It's not going to happen. And with that, I just want to remind us, right now, we are shifting our small group model from a standard one to this missional community groups. And I think we, some of us who have been around, we, we, we might say, you know what, that, that's going to cost me a little more each week. It's going to be a little less comfortable for me. It's going to be awkward. And, and I will tell you, yes, it will be. But that's the call that is upon us. We need to sacrifice some of our comfort to make things comfortable for those who are not here yet without compromise. But that's what this is about. It cannot be about us and our comfort to be obedient, to be a biblical New Testament church called to reach those who are lost. This is who we are. This is who God's calling us to be. Okay, so we've seen uh, two of these already. Opposition is coming, which then leads into the second one. It's not always going to be comfortable, which leads into the third one. It will require courageous leaders. Not every Christian has the same level of courage, and that's okay. But we need men and women who are courageous, who can look death in the eye and say, come, get on my back, let's roll. And that's what we see from Paul here. I want us to see this in verse 30 and 31. We finally get to Paul in this passage. Can you imagine him, two of these these disciples of him, these men that God used uh, him to lead to the Lord, who have left home and family to come follow him? He feels a responsibility over them, and he sees them grabbed and drugged against their will, and he's thinking, man, these guys are dead. I've seen this before. And I love this because what what does Paul want to do? He wants to go in there and confront these 25,000 people for the sake of these two men and, of course, the gospel. Now, scholars will say, and and most of them did that I read this week, that Paul was overconfident in his Roman citizenship. I don't buy that. I think this is just the kind of guy Paul was. He trusted God, and he was a guy who didn't lead from behind. Have you ever had someone you worked for or a leader in your life who led from behind? They would kind of disappear at those moments. That's not Paul. Paul was ready to go in there. Now, was it wise for him to go in there? Obviously not. The disciples said, no, you're not going. We're not letting you. You'll be torn to pieces. Even some of his friends who are in this group, they're called Asiarchs. You'll see that there in verse 31. This was the aristocracy of Asia, of Ephesus. Uh, These were the people who the town officials, the high-ranking officials came from these people. They were the upper class, basically, the ruling class And he had some friends with them, and they sent word to him and urged him, don't go in there, trust us. Uh, Don't go in there, you will be torn to pieces. But nonetheless, we have to appreciate Paul's willingness to take care of his own and to step up and lead. And we need leaders like that in order to be, as we're we're being biblical, as we're following after uh, Christ in this way. Look at this passage from 1 Corinthians 15. 
Now, I'm about to tear this verse out of its context. In fact, anytime you take one verse, you're tearing it away from the context with which the Holy Spirit put it. Uh, and, and this is the great chapter on the resurrection. So just keep that in mind. Make a note of it. If you want to go to the, the theological chapter on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 15. But look what he says as he's teaching and making his argument. He says, what do I gain if humanly speaking? And then he references this very event that we're learning about today. I fought with beasts at Ephesus. And he's trying to say, if the resurrection is not real, Jesus didn't rise from the dead, why would I have done all that I did those three years at Ephesus? I fought with beasts there. And you're going to tell me the resurrection is not true. Uh, So just a, a great passage in there referring to this very event and the kind of man he was. And as far as application here, one, one thing just to remember, when it comes to being a leader in any organization, especially in the church, what will destroy the work of God so quick is when leaders fear man. When leaders care more about what people think than what the Holy Spirit thinks and what the Word of God commands. I felt that in ministry. I'm sure many of you have felt that either in ministry or maybe in your professions, but we cannot fear man. If if somebody who's tithing a million dollars comes and says, hey, Ted, Robert, you know, I don't like the direction of the church, what, got, what you're doing, I'm, I'm going to change it or I'm gone. Let us get the door. We love you. We'll help you find somewhere else to go. But I fear God way more than the loss of your million dollars. That's how it has to be. That's what the church needs in order to be obedient and follow Christ. So we've seen three. The final two, we're going to go back and read the second half of this passage. So please rejoin me uh, in verse 32 as we continue the story, and we see these last two characteristics of an obedient church. Verse 32. Now, some cried out one thing. So this is the crowd in the theater. There's 25,000 people raving mad. Now, some cried out one thing, some another. For the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. A little humor in the text for us. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring, let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So the fourth fourth characteristic of an obedient church is this. It will not bring popularity. It will not bring popularity. Uh, One of the things I love here is just how most of the people in this theater didn't even know why they were there. They were confused. That's the same word used in the Septuagint the Greek Old Testament, about Babel, when God confused the languages. Same word. They didn't know what was going on. And it was a little, little funny moment, but it reminded me of when I was a kid. Uh, so this would have been like early 80s again. My parents used to let me stay up and watch Saturday Night Live for some reason. But anyways, 
Um, it wasn't. It was funny back then. But the, I remember. I remember the scene. It was supposed to be the uh, Republican National Convention. Everyone had Reagan Bush signs, and there I think you had Belushi and Aykroyd, and they were they were kind of out of it. But they had Anheuser Bush signs, and they were you know they didn't know why they were there. It was really funny, and that's what came to my mind as I, I looked at these. These people don't even know what's going on. They're just like, yeah, stone them, kill them, whatever. And isn't that true even today in our society? Uh, very similar. But what I want you to see here, and this is very interesting, the Jews, so these aren't Christians, these are the Jews, that one of their leaders, Alexander, was trying to get up on stage to say a few words. Of course, it doesn't happen. But what's happening here is the Jews had a legitimate status in the Roman Empire. The Rome, they didn't like them. All right, anti-Semitism was always under the surface in Rome. We've seen that before in, the, in this part of the, the world. But they were a legitimate religion. They were allowed to practice their faith. And so these guys want to make sure the Ephesians know that they're not part of this. They have nothing to do with this Christianity, nothing to do with the church. As far as we're concerned, Artemis is okay, right? Because they fear man more than they fear God. And this is a good reminder for us. As we go the biblical route, as we do it God's way, we will always be in the minority when it comes to those who claim to be God's people. It's just a fact. Because these Jews who you know, are cousins in a way, I mean, not too long ago, this church, the church of Ephesus, was allowed to be in the synagogue with them. The Jews and Christians worshiped together. They always had a joint service. And now look how quickly they're turning on them because of the gospel. So we will not, it will not always bring popularity for us. You'll see this passage from Matthew 7, from the, the uh, Sermon on the Mount, which was the inspiration for the title. Jesus reminds his disciples, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. We will always be giving the minority report. It's one thing we have to remember. And just the risk that comes, we will be marginalized, we will be rejected by many. And the day will come, I believe, in our society when churches that are trying to do it God's way uh, will find themselves in the minority. And others who are Christians will turn their back on us. And if you, if you doubt it, read the, uh, the great biography on Dietrich Bonhoeffer by Metaxas, and you'll see what happened in Germany. Just like that, overnight, most of Christianity in Germany became okay with Hitler and were known as the Reich Church. And only a small minority where you know, Dietrich was involved in leading was the confessional church. And so it happened there not too long ago in the most sophisticated and intelligent country at that time on the face of the earth. It can also happen here. And that's why we need to understand this passage and see these great reminders to encourage us. All right, the final one. And I won't spend much time on it. It's just simply the, the part with the town clerk. Uh, being a biblical church, we have to remember will lead us home in the end. And that's the encouragement. Cool thing about Gaius and Articus, they got to go home that night. They weren't hurt. They weren't killed. God sovereignly used this town clerk to go in and dispel, dispel the riot, to stop the violence. Uh, uses, this is a great example, by the way, of ancient rhetoric on the part of the town clerk. This, by, this is also the, he's the highest ranking Ephesian native politician, right? Rome was over them. But as far as the Ephesians, this was the highest-ranking guy. And the irony here is this. He says, you know what? You think these two men are in danger who haven't done anything? You guys with this riot are a danger 
Because the Romans are going to come in pretty soon and shut us down. And we're going to lose some of our freedom. So stop. So there's some irony here, which is very interesting. And also this very odd verse about this sacred stone that fell from the sky. What, that, what scholars believe that is, because it was very common, is a meteor had fallen at some point in the past. Maybe even thousands of, of years before. And this meteor resembled what would become Artemis, the multi-breasted pagan god of, goddess of fertility. So they're worshiping a rock. I almost put a slide with the word Jesus and then a rock and say, man, which do you want to worship, right? Because they're worshiping a rock, a stone. And this was very common back then. Even today in Mecca, the great holy shrine, there's actually a meteorite inside of it that before Muhammad came, they worshiped a rock. So that's actually where a lot of the pagan fertility stuff came from was meteors that supposedly came from Zeus uh, up in heaven. So some interesting stuff there. But what I, want, what I want us to see is this, that even if Gaius and Articus were killed or imprisoned or beaten, they still go home in the end, right? Even if it comes to that which we fear most, we have our citizenship in heaven, and we can't lose that if indeed we are followers of Christ. And that's something we have to focus on. That was Paul's secret. He always had an eye on the things above. He always had his faith in the finish line. He never lost sight of the fact that his citizenship was no longer in Tarsus. It was in heaven. Because regardless what we face, regardless of what comes our way because of of being biblical, we will go home in the end, even if that's to heaven. All right, final application, and then we are done. Uh, Again, another great passage from uh, Matthew. This is from 1618. I love this passage. Jesus tells Peter after his great confession, he says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And here it is, the gates of hell shall not prevail again. We have that promise, and we can take it to the bank. A little bit of homework I have at the bottom here, just some encouragement for, for us in order to be obedient. I think it's important that we know very key passages that we become familiar with. We learn to pray. And here at the Church of Blue Ridge, we learn to encourage one another with, especially as we go into this missional community model and our brothers and sisters are struggling with things. These are some great passages. I encourage you, go through Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, Look at all the in him phrases. Look at all that we have as God's children because of Christ in him. Secondly, memorize Romans 8, 30, and 31. Pray these passages. Learn them so that you can pull them up quickly to encourage each other. Because everyone in this room, at some point in the next few years, if you're not struggling today, will struggle and need your brothers and sisters to encourage you. And then finally, Paul's evangelism strategy. This comes from John Stott. I thought these were very pertinent to us here at the Church of Blue Ridge. Uh, This is what we see from him in these large cities that he's gone to, in Thessalonica, in Corinth, uh, and now in Ephesus as well. Number one, he chose secular settings. And the point there is he shared the gospel in their context. He went out to where the people were. He didn't put up a building in a steeple and expect them to come to him. He went to them. That's very important for us, especially when we're talking about third space. Second, He used reasoned speech. Now, he shared the gospel. That was his content. He never compromised, but he shared it in their words, in a way in which they would understand it uh, as well. And then finally, and this is big for us, he stayed a long time in one place. We see this in Corinth, and now we've seen this uh, at the end of his stay in Ephesus. And that's what they needed. That's what what lost people need. They need need believers who aren't going to run real quick, believers who are going to plant themselves in one place, and stay through the thick and thin. Stay through the feast and the famine. And show these folks who don't know Christ that we're not just going to hit and run. We're here to stay. 
We're not just looking to make some, get you to make some decision. We want to be invested in your life, regardless of when you come to faith in Christ. It's what they need. So I thought these were really good uh, for us. So there you go. These are the five characteristics that we can expect and that we should expect as we strive to be a New Testament biblical church in obedience to the Great Commission that Jesus has given us. So I'm going to go ahead and invite the band back up. And as always, we're going to continue our worship uh, in song in response to what God has shown us this morning. And that's really the invitation for the church. Time to worship. Time to praise God and thank Him for what He has revealed to us this morning from His Word. Uh, And also, the invitation is always open. If if there's something that uh, you want to share with myself, with Robert, uh, come and track us down today or any day. We want to talk to you. If you're not saved especially or you're concerned about where you are with Christ, we want to have that conversation. Don't let much time go by without that. We want to share the gospel with you. If you're interested in uh, becoming a member or any of those things, we'd love to talk to you. Grab someone uh, during or after the service. We'd love to have that conversation. So, again, thank you for being here today. Let's pray one last time as uh, we continue to worship. Heavenly Father, we praise you for this reminder this morning from Scripture. Let it encourage us. Let it, let, it, let it create a fire in our soul as individuals, as families, and as a congregation to redouble our commitment to you and redouble our desire to be biblical, even if it cost us in some of the ways we saw today, Lord. Let us be willing to sacrifice our comfort and in uh, our way of life in such a way that you can use us to reach those are lost. Father, raise up leaders, men and women, right here. And and you already have, which we thank you for, but raise up others who have that courage to lead others even through the storms of life, even through the opposition that we can expect to face as we continue to be faithful. And that's really how I just want to end, Lord. Help us to be faithful and not compromise, not turn from the path that you have called us. And as you test us to see if we really believe what you called us to, to do and who you've called us to be, let us not waver. Let us not get fearful. Let us not stop following and trusting and moving forward to fulfill the vision and the mission that you have given us as the church at Blue Ridge. And we pray these things in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen.